All right, welcome to uh, Lathia Bible Fellowship. Uh, today's sermon has to do with parenting, uh, what it means to be a caregiver, uh, specifically in Ephesians when it talks about exasperating our children. So we're going to take a look at that. If you have uh, any further questions or would like the other sermons in this series on parenting, uh, they're available at our website at abfpdx.org. All right, so we're going to continue today discussing, uh, discussing parenting, uh, specifically what it means to be a caregiver. Uh, we've already discussed the fact that even if you're not a parent, these things still apply to you, so don't tune out. Um, it's important for you to have an understanding of these things. It also is an opportunity, since all of you at one point in time were children, uh, to reflect back on your own childhood. And I know that uh, for some, there's some uh, traumatic experiences there, and that might be difficult for you. Uh, but we, uh, as we'll talk about later, as we take our experiences and the definitions that we've developed for things in the world, it's important for us to know what uh, God's Word has to say about those things and not let the world define how it is that we hold things. So that means that, yes, we have to examine our relationships, we have to examine our experiences and see where definition needs to be corrected as well. Uh, we have discussed the importance of overall parenting. It's not just uh, how it affects the family itself, but how the family then uh, affects the community around it. Uh, how the family affects the, the church, the, the fellowship, how it affects uh, even, you know, state, local government, federal government, the fact that there's a recognition by uh, those in power and authority of the importance of family. And when you have that breakdown in family, that's when you have, well, a lot of the examples that we see around us today of how people are detached from each other, how people uh, don't know how to properly process things, how they uh, hold on to the, a victim mentality even, um, <clears throat> all of these things that come about because the family has broken down in society. We also talked about um, the fact that uh, children are not ours, that they're gifts from God, and not gifts that we get to cling to and hold on to, but that we are merely stewards of for a short time. That's the whole idea of a caregiver, right? Um, you don't caregive for ever and ever and ever and ever. You caregive in order to bring somebody up so that they become self-sufficient in and of themselves, if at all possible, so that they can move on and do the same and do the same. So today, um, we're going to continue to look at how it is that we pass on God's legacy instead of our own in that caregiver uh, capacity. And we're going to look uh, again at some of the verses that I brought up last week and continue to explore. Uh, last week we didn't hit on, on these portions, and I promised that we would, so I wanted to make sure that we took care of them today. So we're going to talk about the instruction that's included uh, from last week in Ephesians. If you remember, we read through Ephesians 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. And we looked at what, uh, what the instruction was for the children, um, what the expectation would be, and also the instruction for uh, the father or for the parents. So Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says, Children, 
Obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So we're going to touch on that last part, right? The verse 4. Um, but in order to do that, I also want to look at a, a verse that, that echoes that same type of sentiment. So you have Ephesians 6, um, verse 4, but you also have Colossians. Uh, so if you turn in Colossians to chapter 3, uh, verses 20 and 21, you see the same type of statement that, uh, that you saw in Ephesians. So Paul writes in Colossians 3, 20 and 21, Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. So we have here a consistency in thought and teaching from Paul to two different churches in two different circumstances, because this is a truth that's fundamental for not just those in Ephesus and Colossae, but for us here today as well. This is a, a truth that uh, doesn't exist only for one community, as it were. Now, both of these verses are also given a, uh, I don't know, a preface. And that preface has to do with the way that husbands and wives are supposed to treat each other. So both of these messages start with husbands and wives and give direction for how they are to interact with each other. And then it carries forward and says, you interact in this way, and then you interact in this way with your children. So it's not just instruction for how it is that we deal with children and how we bring children up and how we uh, care and discipline for them, but also uh, instruction, of course, for how the family unit should work as well. So that you have a nice, strong, foundational unit. So within the context, if we identify here how it is that fathers are supposed to take care of their children, um, we're not supposed to provoke. Uh, this uh, means that we're not supposed to aggravate, and the reason that we don't do that is so they don't become discouraged or, uh, what's the word, disheartened, right? Uh, bring them up as a do, bring them up uh, with discipline, bring them up with instruction from the Lord. So in Ephesians, Paul begins with the negative instruction, don't provoke. Um, and that word provoke means to do things that give our children a reason to become angry or filled with resentment. So this can be a variety of things, right? Uh, the Greek word for this is uh, para orgizo. That's P-A-R-O-R-G-I-Z-O. And that is that idea of provoking, um, angering, exasperating. And in Colossians, Paul uses a different word. Uh, the word to parents is to not exasperate your children. And this is the word erethidzo, erethidzo. So similar type of ending with both of those, and that's spelled E-R-E-T-H-I-Z-O. 
And that means, of course, uh, also to stir up, to provoke, to irritate, to exasperate. So similar concepts, different words that are used for those, but they're both headed the same direction with that. Uh, failure to obey this can cause children to lose heart, um, to become uh, deflated in how they look at the world. Uh, the idea is that the term to be without courage or spirit comes into play. Uh, it's the sense of being listless, sullen, discouraged, despairing. Um, when the family unit breaks down, when you are provoked or exasperated for one reason or another, it's easy to, to lose all sense of confidence in anything, right? The family unit is the first truth that we come to understand, right? This is where we uh, enter into our understanding of what relationship looks like. It's where we begin to um, learn where uh, our, our safety comes from, uh, where we develop trust, uh, where we develop those first true relationships. And if those things are broken, if they're not in proper uh, context, if they're well, I guess broken is really just the best word for it, right? Then that's going to cause issues and a breakdown with the family. So that child's relationships from there on out are going to be affected by this type of despair or uh, you know, deflation of attitude and of confidence how they interact with others, how they interact with a church body, how they interact with authority in general is going to be marred by this. The lens is scratched and everything is blurred and out of context. So when Paul is writing these things, I have no doubt that he's seen some pretty harsh treatment because, you know, you got the Roman Empire going on. And the Roman idea of family is this idea of patria potestas, right? It is the power of the father. The power of the father to control the lives of those in their family. This includes their children and how it is that their children are treated, and the kind of recognition that their children get as well. So the father has, as the head of the family, he gets to exercise control over his children and even more remote descendants in the male line, uh, whatever their age, as well as those that are brought into the family by adoption. Often children were treated as slaves. If they weren't the first in line, the one that would be carrying on the name, then they were not as valuable for the family. Their purpose was then to be sold off to other families, maybe, that didn't have a first male descendant, or possibly, obviously, married off to another family. Um, it didn't matter what the, what the child's reaction to these type of arrangements was. This is just how it was. So Paul, with those things in mind, gives instructions to 
Colossae and Ephesus that this is not the kind of uh, power that you should be wielding in this way. See, it's, it's different than just there's this authority power of the Father over and in control of your life. See, as Christians, we put proper power in its place. And we humbly submit ourselves to the will of God the Father. And it, therefore, affects every single relationship that we have. The scratched lenses that we view things through are changed to clear lenses, so we can see how things are properly supposed to be handled. So we seek to not provoke our children. Now, what are some ways that we would provoke our children? Right? Uh, you can be through, you know, like our, it could be through our attitudes, our words, our actions. Um, it could be severe discipline or harsh treatment. Um, being arbitrary in our instruction, because I said so. Um, it can be because we don't follow through with our warnings, right? If this happens again, this is going to be the consequence. Huh, it happened again. Uh, it can arise from being unfair, favoring one child over another, either out of laziness or intentionally. It can arise from constant nagging without providing any assistance or unqualified condemnation or humiliation of the child. We could also provoke or exasperate our children by being weak. That's, uh, that is acting as if we don't really have any responsibility towards them. You'll figure it out. This can happen, for example, when you're... Uh, you're failing to partner appropriately and you leave the hard things to others. This is where we say, well, I'm not going to discipline you. Go see your mother. Go see your father. I'm not going to discipline you. Why don't you go see oh, Josh? Josh will discipline you. See, that would be a breakdown of the family unit. It can happen when we treat our children as if they are there for our own emotional well-being, right? If we live vicariously through them, rather than remembering that it's our responsibility to be there for them and their emotional well-being, to provide a stable relationship with them so that they can understand how to deal with the mix of crazy emotions that children deal with. It can happen when we as fathers need our children to be a certain kind of person for us or to act a certain kind of way. Or, you know, we just need them and rely on them to make sure that we are happy and we are stable. When we do not carry our weight in relationship and we look on them to take care of us before they're ready to do so. 
Now what we could do is we could be very legalistic here, right? We could go down and we can make this checklist of do's and don'ts. Um, do this, don't do that. Uh, don't be uh, overly harsh and, and abusive. Um, don't be weak-willed. Actually discipline your children. Um, but that's, that's not going to be ultimately helpful for us, and we don't see that that's how our instruction on what we're supposed to be doing in relation to our children is spelled out for us in the Bible. We can get caught up in those minute details and create some type of law for things, but it's never going to work, and we will consistently be thinking about, oh, I'm going to mess up on this part of the law. Oh, I did. Our focus changes from one of being uh, relational creatures that were created to be in relationship with God, the Creator, it changes from then carrying that forward from God to the father and the mother, the partners that we're parenting with, and to the church. And it takes that and throws it in any sort of different ways, right? So if you have the father not recognizing God in that, it messes that up. If you have the mother not recognizing the father or recognizing God, if everything's focused on the child, it throws the whole thing on its head. There must be a proper flow of authority starting at God and then moving through the father, the mother, and our parenting partners. This shouldn't be completely new to some of you, because we did do a couple of parenting classes and we have another parenting class coming up. And this is some of the information that is shared during those classes. So this is a reminder that next Saturday, the 23rd, parenting class starting at 10. You should be there. Practical application. Uh, also, these types of relationships have been discussed in our podcast. So season four of Truth Time with Pastor Monty goes through all these types of relationships that we've been dealing with. So keep those things in mind. So with the proper flow of authority, starting at God and then moving from the father to the mother and our parenting partners and then to the child, this keeps things in a proper alignment much better than any type of legalistic checklist is going to do. Any type of do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Because if those things aren't put into that proper perspective and alignment, it doesn't matter how big your checklist is, how many different scenarios that you think you've figured out, you will fail. Because we're relational beings. But we can see that harsh treatment as well as a lax treatment is going to cause some issues and it can cause exasperation. I think you can see the examples of both of those here where we live. You can see the results if you look out over the, just the general population of America. Uh, considering we live in what's considered one of the most prosperous nations in the world, each year we see an estimated 4.2 million youth and young adults experience homelessness, and of those, 700,000 are unaccompanied minors. 
Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every single one of those is because the fathers provoked or exasperated their children to the point that they're disheartened or they can no longer uh, take the abuse or neglect, but a large portion of them are. Large portion happened because the parental units did not function properly. And so the child, thinking there was no other place to go, left. Now, you do have those examples of the child who had that stability and decides to rebel against it and leave as well. But I think that this figure helps to highlight the need for the proper flow of authority in our families because it puts things into the proper perspective for that child so that they understand how it is that they themselves are going to be living their lives when they leave the nest, as it were. It's a good starting place for them. And we often fall victim to uh, taking the examples around us and applying those to God and saying, well, obviously, since my father was like this, therefore God the Father is like this. Or since my mother was like this, then obviously they're in power, this is how God is. Or since uh, our government is like this, this must be how God is as well. It can be hard to accept the concept of God being a loving father, for example, if you did not have a loving father in your life. It can be uh, hard to accept that if, you know, either due to a divorce or abuse or abandonment, you develop a negative idea of what a father is. It can be hard for you to look at God as God father, as, as God the head of the household, and think good things about that. It can take you a long time to learn to redefine things appropriately. Remember how I started off talking about how we often have to, to, to redefine things in our lives, either because of our own experiences or because this is what, uh, you know, what we grew up with, this is how we understand things. Um, it's easy for us to develop negative ideas and need to redefine words. I mean, when I look at the examples that I was given for fatherhood, and I, if I apply those lenses to God, unfortunately, I would see a God who, well, I only visited uh, in the summer. That's, God doesn't just have visitation rights. But... If we put things correctly into perspective, if we take that important step and we take people's relationships grounded in the foundation of their relationship with God, and we take away those definitions and those lenses that we would apply instead of looking through them to see God, we take how God is exampled for us, what his word says about who he is, how he is uh, actually active in our lives, and we then learn to understand that He defines the world around us. He is the one created everything. He is the one that has laid definition for everything. We let our relationship with God define how 
we see the world around us. I mean, this is a simple concept, right? Instead of defining the world as, well, you do whatever you can to get ahead, make sure that you're taken care of, make sure that your needs are met, and everything else is collateral. We see the world as being in relationship with one another, caring for one another, bringing other people up, making sure other people are taken care of. And thus, with everything in proper perspective, we ourselves are taken care of as well. So there's a reason that we as a church spend a lot of time looking at words and their actual meanings instead of the corrupted definition and understanding that the world has. It's because the Bible and the truths found in the Bible don't change like the dictionary does. Every year, every year, there are changes to definitions of words. There are new words that are added to the dictionary. And those changes happen by consensus based on the word's usage, how it's used in society now, because it has changed. This is a yearly process that they go through and review. So every year you can be on the lookout. In January, you'll get, I mean, well, I get notifications because that's the kind of nerd I am. But there are, there are postings put out by those major dictionaries of new words that they're adding and changes to definitions for words that have existed. You know, one thing that I'm proud that I can stand firm on and I'm excited for is the firm foundation of truth that's found in God's Word that's not going to change based on some type of consensus on a yearly basis. Solid, firm foundation. Not a, a word that changes meaning overnight. We see through the Bible, for example, how God acts as a father, as a parent. You can look in Genesis. As the Creator creates man and creates woman, He gives them instruction and He allows them the opportunity to move freely within the garden. He allows them to make choices. And then when they make a choice counter to his instruction, he allows them to face the consequences of their choices. So though they made choices and they faced the consequences, he didn't abandon them. God's love was still there for them. And he provided a way for them to maintain relationship with him. He sought to maintain relationship with Adam and Eve. In addition to that, there's a couple of, I mean, there's, well, there's more than a couple, right? There's tons of stories of how God interacts with man, of how God calls out to man, how he appropriately parents man. But there's two stories that I think kind of speak to this idea of uh, exasperation, or at least uh, in my mind when I read through them, I understand more uh, this idea of exasperation through two different type of perspectives. Um, one 
is uh, the story of Absalom. Absalom is David's son, one of David's sons. So in this first story, there's both parent and child that make mistakes. And I'm sure that they most likely had frustrated one another. They both felt exasperated because of the situation they found themselves in. Um, eventually, this develops into a distant relationship between father and son and turns into literally open rebellion. And then that has the ultimate tragedy at the end. So the story of David and his son is found in 2 Samuel, and it's a long story. It's several chapters, so we're not going to read through it. I'm going to give you the James overview. Uh, so keep in mind, if you want the full version, uh, please turn to 2 Samuel and read through that. Um, I, I do recommend that because uh, it, it is good reading there for you. Now, King David, of course, is celebrated as a man after God's own heart, but he also has some flaws, right? He wasn't perfect in that. Uh, you see, David, while a great king, was not a great father. The trouble starts when he lusts after Bathsheba and brought her in the palace and slept with her and then sent her home, and then a short time later received word that she was pregnant. You're probably familiar with the story if you've ever been to Sunday school. Now, in an effort to cover up his sin, he arranges to have her husband, Uriah, sent back from the battlefront, but he refuses to sleep with his wife while the troops are in the field. So, David comes up with a letter plan. Since he wouldn't do that, then he's going to have people place Uriah at the front of the battle, where he will most surely be killed. But there's more after that story, right? Sometime later, one of David's other sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister Tamar. And though David is aware of this incident, he apparently didn't do anything about it. The Bible doesn't show anything happening directly from David's order in that. But Absalom, David's other son, did something about it. Angered at his sister's disgrace, he killed Amnon. So you have one son killing another son. Then he feared for his life, so he fled into the wilderness. And David, again, isn't recorded as doing anything about this. And when Absalom finally returns to Jerusalem, where his father is king, he didn't receive any type of welcome or greeting. There was no forgiveness. In fact, David refused to meet with him at all. And a short time later, angered at his father's rejection, Absalom begins to build his own political power base within the city. He seeks after the favor of people and is leading, at, uh, at a certain point, he's leading a full-scale rebellion against his father. He just puts himself in the place of where his father could or should be and says, well, you see how I have time for you even though the king doesn't? And he begins to win favor with people, and he starts his own rebellion. Now David, in fact, at one point is forced to flee the city in disgrace. And basking in his victory, Absalom entered David, enters David's palace, goes up to the rooftop, and he sleeps with all his father's concubines, publicly shaming his father in a clear sign of open rebellion. You know, I praise God that my life is not this complicated. But I also praise God for the example that he's given us 
in these things. So the story of David and Absalom is a powerful example of what, example of what can happen when families fail, right? When things don't work the way that they should in a family. It's clear that David exasperated Absalom so that he felt that he needed to take over the duties of his father. He felt that there were no other actions. And so he, well, David himself also exasperates the situation by committing murder and adultery himself and teaching this as a, uh, oops, I messed up, but here's my example. So Absalom is exasperated to the point where seeing no discipline coming from David for Amnon, who's guilty of a terrible crime against his sister, he takes matters into his own hands. This is David who sought and received forgiveness from God for his own sins. He exasperates his son by refusing to extend any forgiveness then later to Absalom when he returns to the city, not even willing to meet with him. It's also clear that Absalom was disobedient to his father by taking matters into his own hands and killing his half-brother, fleeing the city to escape punishment that he knew would come from his crime. He failed to go to his father and ask for forgiveness, insisting that his father come to him and rebelled against his father's authority by leading an open rebellion against the king. So neither father or son did anything to try to restore communication, much less a relationship. And the tragedy is, they never had the opportunity. Because once the ball was set in motion, if you read through 2 Samuel, you see that Absalom is killed, even though there were direct orders not to do so. Now, I'm not saying that your children are going to go into open rebellion and start a war with you. But I'm not saying that they're not, either. Wars look a little bit differently. Rebellion looks different in this day and age. And the second story that I would bring up to you, other than the story of Absalom, that to me talks about some level of exasperation is about the son who openly rebels against his son and rejects his father's values. But in this case, I don't really think that the father did anything to exasperate him. Instead, he gave his son freedom to make those bad choices, and despite those con the consequences that would come inevitably, he didn't stop. He allowed those consequences to come to bear. He didn't sit back and say, I told you so, Instead, he extends an open arm of forgiveness and grace towards his wayward son. This might sound familiar. This is commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. So if you look in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, you can see this illustrated. And since this is only a few short verses, we'll go ahead and read it. So Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. Uh, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. 
A few days later, the son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land where he wasted all of his money on wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. So he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, you know, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, and filled with love and compassion, ran to the son, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to him, said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine that was dead has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. See, no parent, of course, is perfect, and all of us make mistakes in our parenting. There are things that we would do differently if we were given a second chance. There are people that God put in our lives to help to supplement those fails, right? Uh, that's the, the people that are partnering with us in parenting. Um, perhaps it is that you've neglected your child's welfare by focusing too much attention on their public lives and not enough on their family lives. We don't talk about what goes on at home. This is the face that we show the public. Perhaps you've prop, uh, failed to show the proper flow of authority at home, and perhaps we're guilty of failing to administer appropriate discipline and correction when it is needed. There's something to be learned in both of the stories, in Absalom and in the, uh, the parable. We're called not to provoke our children to anger, nor to exasperate them. And notice that we're told to do this, followed up with instruction on what we should be doing. It's a simple phrase, simple thing that we should be doing, bringing them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. See, this is an important clue how to avoid exasperation. It, it's about setting that proper foundation so that if they choose to rebel and if they choose to run off, they know that there is still safety to be found there. And when they return to us, we open them back into our family. With outstretched arms, we can run to them and embrace them. This gives us an understanding of relationship that the children should have, not just with us, but with God themselves. They should be taught and understand that, well, through the parent's example, that they have a personal relationship with God as well. So that eventually, when they grow up, they can show that care 
and transfer it to their relationships and their family. Because we are caregivers of them for just a short while. It goes like that. It really does. I mean, seems like just the other day I was holding two girls in a Burger King because that's where I worked. One in each arm. Very proud papa for the first time. And today I'm forgetting their birthday's coming up on Wednesday. Huh? It's Thursday? Oh, man. See how quickly that went? So the key here today is uh, we're not going to go through and give you a legalistic checklist, right, of do's and don'ts in parenting. If we did that, uh, it'd be the, the same as maybe trying to come up with uh, a new Mosaic law. But we see that we are freed from the law, so it doesn't make sense to apply a new law. Now, that's not to say that there's not guidelines, right? There are guidelines and there are things that we can do, but it starts first and foremost with the proper flow of authority through relationship with God that carries out their whole, through the whole family. And that is the key thing. That's why Paul follows up that imploring not to exasperate your children with bring them up with discipline and instruction from the Lord. So those are the key things to remember today. So I do have a couple questions for you to take into your cell groups to discuss and to, uh, you know, maybe uh, think about some more as well. The first question is, how have you been exasperated by your parents? This gives you some reflection. How have you been exasperated by your parents? Then the next one is, uh, what steps can you take to avoid provoking your children? Now remember, if you don't have children, you do have relationships with people that look up to you, so put them in the place of children. But what steps can you take to avoid provoking them? And then thirdly, what do you do to provide instruction from the Lord in your family? What do you do to provide instruction from the Lord in your family, as we're advised by Paul to do 